I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Welcome to this podcast of The People's Pharmacy. You can find previous podcasts and more information on a range of health topics at peoplespharmacy.com. COVID has created tremendous controversy about prevention and treatment tactics. Can lifestyle make a difference? This is The People's Pharmacy with Terry and Joe Graydon. Translating complex medical research into practical strategies is challenging. Our guest today excels at demystifying medical concepts. Dr. Roger Schwell is a pulmonologist, sleep expert, and critical care physician. He interprets the latest research in understandable language. How much vitamin D do we need? Are there supplements that can boost our body's ability to fight pathogens? Why is light so important to good health? Coming up on The People's Pharmacy, how we can stay healthy even when viral infections are widespread. In The People's Pharmacy Health Headlines, catching COVID appears to increase the risk of developing type 2 diabetes. That's a finding published in JAMA Network Open this week. Investigators reviewed the medical records of nearly 24,000 patients who were diagnosed with COVID-19 at the Cedars-Sinai Health System in Los Angeles. The likelihood of developing type 2 diabetes increased by 58%. This result is consistent with a large systematic review and meta-analysis of nine studies with nearly 40 million participants. In that study, the relative risk of developing type 2 diabetes after COVID infection was 62%. The authors suggest that patients and caregivers pay close attention to blood glucose levels during the first three months after a COVID-19 infection. First, there was the SARS-CoV-2 virus that causes COVID-19. Then came respiratory syncytial virus, or RSV. Influenza followed that. No sooner did RSV and the flu begin to fade than norovirus started spreading. If you're not familiar with this highly infectious virus, it's also known as the cruise ship virus. It causes severe gastrointestinal distress with pain, nausea, and vomiting, as well as diarrhea. It's not restricted to cruise ships. The CDC reports that this easily transmitted infection is widespread across the country. British public health officials are also reporting much higher rates of norovirus than usual. There's no effective treatment other than tincture of time. It's important for patients to stay hydrated and avoid contact with other people. Because this virus is spread so easily, frequent thorough handwashing is crucial. Cannabidiol, also known as CBD, is a component of the cannabis plant. Unlike THC, CBD does not make people high. It's being promoted for a range of unapproved purposes such as pain relief, inflammation, and insomnia. In 2018, the FDA approved a cannabidiol formulation called Epidiolex to control hard-to-treat childhood epilepsy. Now, scientists believe they've discovered how CBD works to control seizures. When a neuron fires, it sends an electrical pulse to the synapse or a gap between it and its neighbors. That gap is spanned with the help of neurotransmitters such as glutamate that tell the next cell to fire. 
Firing is also termed excitation, and too much excitation can lead to seizures. This study looked at chemicals in rodent brains, but human brains presumably work in a similar manner. A compound called lysophosphatidyl inositol, or LPI, amplifies the signals traveling between neurons by binding to a protein on the cell membrane. In most cases, this can be helpful. In some cases, though, the interaction between LPI and the protein results in a vicious cycle, leading to overexcitation and seizures. CBD blocks that positive feedback loop and interrupts seizures. An edible mushroom called lion's mane, for its unusual appearance, has a reputation for improving heart health, modulating the immune system, and fighting cancer. In China, folklore suggests that it might be beneficial against dementia. Now, researchers in Australia have isolated compounds from this mushroom that help nerve cells connect to each other. Giving the compounds to mice led to improved memory on a standardized maze test. The authors call for more research to determine whether the active ingredients in lion's mane mushrooms could improve memory performance and slow cognitive decline in aging humans. Another food that may turn out to have beneficial effects on cognitive function is the popular spice cinnamon. Researchers reviewed 40 studies of cinnamon or active components of cinnamon bark. The majority of these studies were conducted in animals, though a handful were test tube studies and two were clinical trials. One study conducted in teenagers showed improved memory and reduced anxiety when the adolescents chewed cinnamon-based gum for more than a month. Animal studies also supported the potential for cinnamon to enhance learning and memory. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Over the last three years, many medical experts have weighed in on COVID-19. We've interviewed virologists, vaccinologists, and immunologists. Today, we're talking with a physician who has spent time in the trenches treating patients. He's also an extraordinary communicator about complex medical topics. Our guest today is Dr. Roger Schwelt. He's an associate clinical professor at the University of California, Riverside School of Medicine and an assistant clinical professor at the School of Medicine and Allied Health at Loma Linda University. Dr. Schweld is board certified in internal medicine, pulmonary diseases, critical care medicine, and sleep medicine through the American Board of Internal Medicine. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy, Dr. Roger Schwelt. So nice to be here. Thanks. Dr. Schwelt, you've been explaining medical concepts to health professionals for a decade in your MedCram videos. We're big fans. We, we love what you do. It's, it's quite extraordinary. What inspired you to devote such effort to demystifying complex medical concepts? Well, you might think that it was uh, magnanimous, but it was actually not not so much so. It all started when I was a, well, I still am a pulmonary and critical care specialist, and I was taking physician assistant students uh, from Loma Linda University. And one of those students just happened to be Kyle Allred, who's the co-founder of MedCram. 
And uh, when he came on my rotation, we would do a lot of teaching on the rotation. And I noticed that every time we did teaching, we'd have to sort of restate the same lectures. And he said, you know, hey, you're a great teacher. What you're doing is actually really, really nice. We should put it on on YouTube, like Khan Academy type of, you know, chalk talk styles. And uh, and I think it'd be very, um, very uh, helpful for students all around the world. And I said, well, this is a great idea. This way I could just have the students uh, watch the videos and then come into to class or in the clinic where we're working. We could go over those videos. It would save a lot of time and also keep things consistent. So that's sort of like flipping the classroom. And uh, we started that about 10 years ago. And uh, it's grown uh, significantly uh, since that time. So it's um, that, that's how it all got started. Well, we have to admit that we first encountered your MedCram videos uh, about three years ago, um, early in the pandemic. And we are wondering, over three years, what have we learned about this incredible infection that has raced around the world? Yeah, I think what we learned was that it can cause a lot of heartache, it can cause a lot of disruption, and it can also sort of uh, bring out the best in some people and also the worst. Um, if you look back from the 30,000-foot level, though, I think it behaved uh, pretty much exactly how most of the pandemics in recent world history have behaved. There's a, a huge wave of, of death and uh, destruction and then it, it sort of simmers out and then becomes part of the uh, the virus that we encounter on a uh, on a yearly basis, kind of like we're we're seeing now with uh, waves going up in in the winter season, uh, depending on you know if you're in the southern northern hemisphere. Um, but that's generally it. I, I expect that uh, deaths from COVID nineteen will continue to go down um, as more and more people get T cell immunity to it, uh, even though they might not be getting B cell. Uh, immunity to the to the spike protein and prevent infections. I think infections will happen, but I don't think it'll be the massive waves that we've seen in the past. I wonder if you could give us from the bird's eye view and the science, because you have looked very, very carefully at the medical literature, what things people can do to stay as healthy as possible dealing with any kind of infection, especially a viral infection like COVID-19, but whether it's influenza, whether it's quote unquote, the common cold, rhinoviruses, adenoviruses, what, what are your general recommendations based on the science that you've reviewed? Yeah. So I think if you look at the science, you look at the data and uh, we started to do this very early in the pandemic when we really didn't have anything people were like, what can we do? And I started to really concentrate on things that were easy to do, things that were scalable, things that didn't require a supply chain, um, because those are the sorts of things that go down in a pandemic. And, um, you know, in my research, I came across people that have done this before. I, I certainly wasn't the, the one that sort of looked at this, but a, a good mnemonic that I came up with, uh, actually I found, someone else came up with, is the mnemonic New Start. N-E-W-S-T-A-R-T. And those eight letters really represent the eight laws of health that help us as human beings to be healthy and to be able to take care of this. And what do they stand for? N stands for nutrition. 
So um, there's plenty of data that uh, appropriate nutrition is, is essential for good health and being able to withstand these sorts of viral infections. E is exercise. Uh, w is water. We can talk about not just drinking water, but the external use of water and, uh, and how that works. And then START, S-T-A-R-T. S stands for sleep. And there's plenty of data that shows that getting good, adequate sleep can actually have a tremendous impact on your immune system's ability to fight infection. T stands for temperance. And that's sort of an old term that we use, but it talks basically about, you know, substances that are harmful to us and making sure that we're cutting those down. A stands for air. And uh, all you have to do is go back maybe 80, 100 years ago, and you'll know that air and fresh air and its use in terms of buildings and even going outside can have an impact on health. And then R stands for rest. And I'm not just talking about sleep, but we talked about earlier, but, you know, Pulling back from things and getting a break has a tremendous impact on on our health, and uh, that's culturally um, acceptable. Uh, and and also, you know, it has to do with taking a day off once a week, not just every day, but also pulling back and getting a vacation. And then the last one is is tea, and this gets into the more um, uh, spiritual aspect of it. And it's and this is well documented in people who. Uh, have trust in a higher being, um, the ability to be able to give up that fear and anxiety. And that also has uh, implications in terms of cortisol in our immune system. So New Start was actually coined by a, uh, a group out in California, uh, just outside of Sacramento at the Weimar Institute. Now it's Weimar University. And they are uh, actually, actually teaching these sorts of uh, things. They actually have a health style program that actually does this but um, there's nothing copyrighted on on these these sorts of things so new start I think is a good way of uh, expressing that we're going to come back to nutrition a little later in the show because I want to get specific nutrients that you think may be helpful against viral infections perhaps things like n-acetylcysteine NAC NAC zinc vitamin C vitamin D, vitamin K2. But first, let's start with light. Light as medicine. Beyond vitamin D, how, how does light impact our well-being? Oh, wow. I mean, we, we did a video on, on our MedCram channel that was over an hour long just on this. So let's put it down to this. It, it, a lot of these things that we're going to discuss have to do with our circadian rhythm. And there are certain times of the day where light is beneficial. And there are certain times of the day when light is not beneficial. And when we talk about light, uh, let's, let's you know, basically be clear on this is that light is not just the light that you can see. It's also the light that you can't see. And so we're talking about outside of the visible spectrum, things like ultraviolet and in infrared, which is, I think, huge as well. So let's, let's sort of break this down. Um, there is the light that comes into our eyes. Uh, we can see that. But there's also light that comes into our eyes that you can't see. And it goes to specific areas of the brain that also uh, impact our health. So light is one of the things that sets our circadian rhythm. And uh, that's the thing that tells us when it's time to go to bed and when it's time to wake up. And uh, if you look at society and what we've done in terms of looking at light after the sun goes down, that's not something that the human body is used to. And what that does is it uh, shuts down melatonin production in the brain. And melatonin is a very 
important substance that has antioxidant properties and it has anti-cancer properties. And when that shuts down, you don't get the benefit of melatonin at night. Uh, the other thing that light does is when it goes into your eyes at night is it tends to delay your circadian rhythm. That means that you do things later in the day now. You tend to fall asleep later. You tend to get up later. And you can imagine that if the, your responsibilities are the same, it's going to cause you to have insomnia at night and hypersomnia or increased sleepiness during the day. So that's just one aspect of light and, and how that works. Um, the other aspect of light that we've talked about on our MedCram channel is near-infrared light. So this is the portion of light from the sun that we would feel as heat. Uh, warmth, for instance, if on a, on a warm, sunny day, if you were to turn your back and close your eyes, you'd be able to feel that warmth on your skin as even as it goes through your clothes. It's that type of radiation that you're feeling, that near-infrared, that the majority of the energy from the sun is actually coming through and is being manifested in near-infrared light. This can actually penetrate through your skin into your body, and science is now showing us interacts with mitochondria. So what are mitochondria? Mitochondria are the powerhouses of your cell that make energy. And the science is now showing that a lot of the chronic diseases that we have in the United States are related to mitochondrial dysfunction, diseases like dementia, Parkinson's disease, metabolic syndrome, diabetes, hypertension, obesity. And uh, the science is showing that near-infrared radiation has an effect on the mitochondria to make it healthier and to actually, uh, according to some studies, may even promote melatonin production at that level, uh, which has tremendous impacts. You're listening to Dr. Roger Schwelt, Associate Clinical Professor at the University of California Riverside School of Medicine and Assistant Clinical Professor at the School of Medicine and Allied Health at Loma Linda University. He's founder and principal presenter of the medical education company MedCram, which provides continuing medical education to countless health professionals. His passion is demystifying medical concepts. Dr. Schwelt received the 2021 San Bernardino County Medical Society's William L. Cover, MD, Award for Outstanding Contribution to Medicine. After the break, we'll hear more about the health benefits of light. What can shift workers do to adjust to their unusual schedules? Dr. Schwelt has some simple advice on dealing with insomnia. We'll also consider how circadian rhythms should influence our eating patterns. Does intermittent fasting have benefits? You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Cocovia, maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements. Cocoflavanols are among the most well-studied plant-based nutrients, backed by 20 years of scientific research. Cocovia Cardio Health is available in capsules or powder, providing 500 milligrams of cocoflavanols daily. This supports better blood flow and vascular performance. Cocovia also offers Memory Plus, a supplement with 750 milligrams of cocoflavanols. This product is backed by four different clinical studies, demonstrating significant improvement in several aspects of memory. Cocovia flavanols offer you all the benefits of chocolate without the sugar. Get 15% off your order by using the discount code PEOPLES15. That discount code, PEOPLES15. 
More information at cocovia.com. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia, maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements that support cognitive and cardiovascular health. More information at cocovia.com. And by Gaia Herbs, focused on purity, potency, and transparency through its Meet Your Herbs platform, tracing the origin and DNA of each product. Connecting people, plants, and planet to create healing. More information at GaiaHerbs.com. Why is exposure to natural light so important for human health? Is it just the vitamin D, or could it be something more? We're talking with Dr. Roger Schwelt, an associate clinical professor at the University of California, Riverside School of Medicine, and an assistant clinical professor at the School of Medicine and Allied Health at Loma Linda University. He's the director of a sleep lab and is the medical director for the Crafton Hills College Respiratory Care Program. Dr. Schwelt is co-founder with Kyle Allred of MedCram, a medical education company with CME-accredited videos. Dr. Schwelt, you've been talking about the importance of our uh, circadian rhythm, of, of us being exposed to light during the daytime and not being exposed to light during the nighttime. But there are a lot of people who have to work shifts. What can they do? Yeah, and this is a real issue, and we really depend on them. Trust me, in the medical field, uh, if we don't have shift workers, uh, things are going to go wrong. Um, so what I would recommend doing for shift workers, if they're working exclusively at night, and, and those are the easiest ones to take care of uh, because they're always consistent, is to be consistent. So basically switch your AM for your PM. So as we would normally get up at uh, you know 5 or 6 o'clock in the morning, these shift workers are getting hopefully up at five or six o'clock in the evening. Make sure that they're getting exposed to as much light as we would be during the day, but also make sure that they are not being exposed to light at the same times that we wouldn't want to be exposed during our daytime. So, so in other words, if we're going to bed at nine, 10 o'clock at night and making sure that our rooms are dark and that we're not getting light exposure, they should be doing the same thing at nine, 10 o'clock in the morning, going to bed. If they need to put foil on their windows, if they need to shut out all of the light, if they need to wear something over their eyes to make sure that that's not happening, there's no light coming in, then that's what they ought to do. And then more specifically is making sure that they're doing this on days that they're not actually going into work. So in other words, don't revert back to the regular daytime functioning when they have a couple of days off. It's to keep the circadian rhythm in their mind shifted so that they are in sync with their circadian rhythm and not ours. So stay with the same pattern day after day. Now, I do have another question. I know that you have a board certification in sleep medicine, and I know that there are a lot of people with insomnia. So is there any um, simple advice where they should start in dealing with insomnia? Yes. Excellent. Good question. So I would say, um, and you can get a list of these things. If you go to the American Academy of Sleep Medicine on, on their website, they have a list of a whole bunch of, of what they call sleep hygiene recommendations. And so 
you know, we can talk about what those are. This would mean going to bed at the same time every, every evening, making sure you have a winding down of it. One of the things that I, I counsel my patients on a lot of times is to make sure that you're not doing things in the bedroom that would confuse your mind. So, you know, obviously us here who, who have uh, a standard of living where we actually have a bedroom, um, you know, a lot of people in this world have one room house and so they don't have a bedroom. But for those of us that do have bedrooms, there is a subconscious signal that goes to your mind when you go into that bedroom that it's time to sleep. If you're going into that bedroom to watch television or to work on something uh, or to do something else, you're going to dilute that stimulus that's going to be telling your brain it's time to go to sleep. And this is the reason why I tell people that if you're having difficulty falling asleep in that bedroom, don't stay in the bedroom, get out of that bedroom, go to another part of the house until you feel sleepy. You know, it's interesting how many patients that I see and they tell me, you know, I feel sleepy at night. I get ready to go to bed uh, in the kitchen, for instance, or in the family room or the living room. And as soon as I walk into the bedroom, I'm wide awake and I cannot fall asleep. And one of the reasons for that is that we're battling when we go into that bedroom to fall asleep. We have insomnia. We feel like this is affecting our health. And you actually have a competition that's going to happen, uh, performance anxiety. You know, are you going to be able to perform tonight when you go to your bedroom to try to sleep? And if you can't do that, that's anxiety provoking. Take that out of the bedroom. Let the bedroom be a place of success where you can fall asleep and, and go and do well. Dr. Schwelt, I promised that we were going to talk a little bit about nutrients and supplements, and we are a little bit later on, but, but I do want to talk about vitamin D because there has been so much confusion about sunlight, ultraviolet radiation, how humans and presumably animals have been getting their vitamin D for thousands of years is from the sun, but now we go from our homes to our cars, to our offices. We, we don't spend very much time out in the sun. And when we do, we're wearing sunscreen. And a lot of the studies that have supplemented people with vitamin D haven't shown the benefits that we expected. Can you give us a quick tutorial on vitamin D and why it's so important as a byproduct of exposure to sunlight? Yeah, this is a great topic. Um, so yes, so ultraviolet B radiation specifically is the radiation that promotes the production of vitamin D in the dermis. And vitamin D is essential for many different functions in the body, not just uh, bone metabolism, but also immune situations. And, and to be clear, there are some studies that have shown that supplementing in a randomized controlled trial way improved outcomes. There was just a study that came out that showed that autoimmune diseases dropped when people were given uh, vitamin D. But it's also fair to say that there's been a number of randomized controlled trial data where vitamin D failed to really give the, the endpoints um, in COVID-19, for instance. So yeah, that is, that is a, uh, an issue. So what I would try to uh, convey is that I believe that sunlight is perfectly designed to uh, give us the the appropriate therapeutic measures that we need, and that vitamin D is only one of those components. So the, to understand that, you have to understand that ultraviolet radiation from the sun only really comes through 
in, in significant amounts when the sun is high up in the sky. And that's because ultraviolet light has a very hard time penetrating through the atmosphere. You're not going to get a lot of ultraviolet light when the sun is rising in the east or when it's setting in the west. The majority is going to come between 10 and 2 o'clock uh, in the day. That's and not let me just case. interrupt you. Dr. Schott, let me just interrupt you. That's when the dermatologists tell us, don't go outside and don't expose your skin to the sun. Before 10, after 2 is okay. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, so you're, you're, so you're telling us, rethink that strategy. Well, yes, and I'll tell you the, w- why potentially that may be. And, it's, and it has to do with our, uh, our behavior indoors. As, as you know, uh, 93% of our time we're spending inside. Uh, we're not going outside. But if, if you look at what comes through the atmosphere at all times of the day, typically the sun radiation during the early morning hours are very rich in near-infrared radiation. And then uh, it continues to rise, but then ultraviolet starts to come through. And then towards the latter part of the day, ultraviolet drops off, and now you have just predominantly near-infrared radiation, of course, and, and visible light as well throughout the day. So what this... What this means is that this near-infrared radiation, as we discussed, is actually uh, giving the mitochondria the ability to produce the types of things that would protect us from ultraviolet radiation. So if you, if you will, in the beginning of the day, you're getting a buildup of protective substances in your body that's going to get you ready for the onslaught of ultraviolet light. Then the ultraviolet light comes through after 10 o'clock, but you, you are sufficiently protected because of what's built up through the early morning. You get the ultraviolet radiation now, but you're protected from damage. And now you're making vitamin D like you should be. And then uh, as the day ends, now there's less ultraviolet radiation. The near-infrared radiation is, is again, causing the mitochondria to produce melatonin, perhaps, and other substances that are going to fix any damage that might have happened. And then the day ends. And hopefully you go home and you're not looking at light after that. So melatonin can then mop up and continue to do things during the night. So it's that day in, day out exposure that actually has it built in. The problem is, is when we skip the near infrared radiation, we go out in the in the midday and get exposed to ultraviolet radiation without the pre- the pre-treatment, uh, if you will, f- with near-infrared radiation. So the take-home message? The take-home message here is to make sure you're getting early morning light exposure for a number of reasons. Number one, good near-infrared radiation. Number two, it also settles out your circadian rhythm and, and the timing. And then if you are going to go out between 10 and 2 and you don't want to get those uh, dangerous ultraviolet radiation rays and perhaps you want to just supplement with vitamin D, or if you do have to go out, put sunscreen on because sunscreen can actually help in, the, in, in terms of ultraviolet radiation. But it will not stop near-infrared radiation. Dr. Schwell, we've been talking about circadian rhythms, and I'm hoping that you will tell us a little bit about how this should inform our eating patterns. Oh, yeah. So a very good topic uh, with a lot of data. So circadian rhythm is actually much more significant than we thought. And and this is actually something that people listening to this uh, uh, program would be uh, very interested in because now we're hearing from not only from physicians and sleep specialists, but also from pharmacists that are, are telling us, and for good reason, that the circadian rhythm is so important that even medication side effects 
can exhibit uh, and, and manifest at certain times of the day versus others. That's how important the circadian rhythm is. So it should not come as a surprise to learn that the sensitivity of insulin, for instance, has its maximal benefit in the morning time. In other words, if you were to eat calories in the morning, the body is actually timed appropriately to deal with those calories in a beneficial way versus eating those same amount of calories in the evening time when uh, the body's circadian rhythm is not geared to deal with uh, intake of calories. And so if you look at this, and, and the, the data is becoming more and more clear, that old expression that they used to say was eat breakfast like a king, eat lunch like a prince, and supper like a pauper is, is actually starting to ring true. And so if, if we are looking at, uh, for instance, the uh, doing intermittent fasting, okay, so this is, uh, what is intermittent fasting? This is where people uh, insert into their 24-hour day a period of time of about 16, 15, 16 hours where there's no calories that are being consumed. They're, they may be drinking water, but no calories. There really isn't a set time as to when those calories should should not be uh, taken in, but we're finding out that the benefit seems to be greater if we're putting that time period of eating calories earlier in the day and not having calories later in the day. So I think it, it does actually make a difference. What are the benefits of intermittent fasting? Yeah, that is... Great. Um, so there are a whole bunch of factors in the body, um, factors that uh, improve brain function, something called BDNF or brain-derived natriuretic factor. Um, there are uh, a whole host of other uh, signaling uh, molecules that improve. These are surrogate markers, of course, that are for health that improve. So we're talking metabolic, we're talking diabetes. There was a study recently that was published in China that looked at diabetics and they basically said, okay, you can eat whatever you want. You can eat how much you want, but you're going to be limited to these time periods and only eat at this time. And it showed that those that engaged in intermittent fasting um, had a reduction of about 20% in their hemoglobin A1C scores. And the hemoglobin A1C is basically a measure of how well their diabetes is controlled. And the lower the number, the better. And there was a 20% reduction just based on when you eat. So, you know, if you look at this, uh, there are certain processes in the body that repair, certain processes that break down. And those processes are accelerated and, in fact, turned on only during periods of fasting. So when you fast, you're no longer breaking down glucose, you're now breaking down fatty acids, and that produces ketones. And those ketones are actually signaling the processes in your body to repair. And that's important. People look at health, sometimes only from the point of weight, how much do you weigh? Um, but that's a quantitative assessment of the human body. What I would like to say is that a qualitative assessment of the human body, do you have, you may be, you may have a good weight, maybe you're 120 pounds or 150 pounds, but what's the quality of the proteins in your body? What's the quality of the cells in your body? Because as we know, cancer cells and uh, metabolic problems are a result, not of how much weight necessarily, but the quality of those cells and of their DNA. Your body knows what it needs to do to break those things down. If you give the body the opportunity to break those things down, then you will eliminate that and, uh, and potentially eliminate cancer as well, or at least reduce its risk. 
Now, Dr. Schwald, I have to admit that uh, we have adopted a kind of intermittent fasting lifestyle. We have a, a big breakfast, as you have suggested, often with uh, protein. Scrambled eggs, for example, is what we had this morning. Um, but in addition, we have a good lunch. And we generally stop eating sometime before 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And as a result, I have been gradually able to lose weight over the course of several months. Not a lot, but a little. And it has made a huge difference. You didn't mention anything about weight. You talked about hemoglobin A1C. What are the studies showing when it comes to weight? So it's kind of mixed. Um, there are some studies that show that there is weight loss, and um, and that can happen uh, certainly. Um, but there's also some studies that have not shown weight loss, and it I think it may depend. Uh, you know, it may depend on when you're doing the intermittent fasting. I would, uh, from what my research has has looked at and, and seen, is I think it's important to make sure that the period of fasting is in the afternoon to the evening time, which coordinates with when the body is going to sleep. And I think if it's done that way, uh, I think that you will actually see not only an improvement in some of these uh, self, self factors that we talked about, but you will also see an improvement in weight. But I also want to stress that, that it's not just weight loss that is the, I think, the end-all be-all when it comes to intermittent fasting. What we're looking at here is the quality of the cells in your body and the, uh, and the ability to break down things that are not of good quality. You have to give the body time to do that, and I think intermittent fasting is, a, is a, one of those good ways of doing it. You're listening to Dr. Roger Schwelt, Associate Clinical Professor at the University of California, Riverside School of Medicine, and Assistant Clinical Professor at the School of Medicine and Allied Health at Loma Linda University. Dr. Schwelt is quadruple board certified in internal medicine, pulmonary diseases, critical care medicine, and sleep medicine through the American Board of Internal Medicine. He practices in Beaumont, California, as a critical care physician, pulmonologist, and sleep physician at Optum, California. He's co-founder and principal presenter of the medical education company MedCram, which provides continuing medical education to countless health professionals. His passion is demystifying medical concepts. After the break, we'll find out what we need to know about drinking water. We'll also talk about other therapeutic uses of water in hot springs or saunas. Is there a benefit to exposing your body to cold after a hot sauna? Are there any supplements that might be helpful against viral infections? Find out about zinc and quercetin as well as vitamin C. Vitamin D is essential. How much should a person take? You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Gaia Herbs. For more than 30 years, Gaia Herbs has nurtured the connection between people and plants to deliver nature's vitality. Their full-spectrum formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial to get in the way. Learn more at GaiaHerbs.com. That's 
G-A-I-A-Herbs.com. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia, offering its cardio health product with 500 milligrams of cocoflavanols in powder or capsule form. More information at cocovia.com. And by Gaia Herbs. Their formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial. More information at Gaia. G-A-I-A herbs.com. Today we're talking about a range of strategies to stay healthy, even when viral infections are widespread. What can we do to make sure we're properly hydrated and what supplements might be helpful? Our guest is Dr. Roger Schwelt, an associate clinical professor at the University of California Riverside School of Medicine and an assistant clinical professor at the School of Medicine and Allied Health at Loma Linda University. He's a critical care physician, pulmonologist, and sleep physician at Optum California in Beaumont, California. He's also co-founder with Kyle Allred of MedCram, a medical education company with CME-accredited videos. Dr. Schwelt, we'd like to talk about hydration. There's been uh, a, a bit of a buzz lately about the idea that you really don't need to drink eight, eight-ounce glasses of water a day, um, that there may have been some small errors in the original research that set that one up. So tell us, what should we know about drinking water and then we'll move on to some other ways that we might want to think about water and health. I think water is tremendously important. Um, It's the body's way of getting rid of toxins. And uh, all of our cells are, are filled with water. In fact, you know, depending on on uh, who you are, you could have anywhere between 50 and 70% body water. So I, uh, I actually believe that water is extremely important there. There's a study that was just published this month looking at, uh, 25-year follow-up on people with uh, sodium levels that were elevated. So it's kind of interesting in the human body is that if you have a high concentration of sodium in your blood, it really has nothing to do with how much sodium you're taking in. It has to do with how much water you're taking in. The more water you take in, the lower your sodium is. And the less water you take in, more importantly, the higher your sodium is. And so when they followed these people over 25 years looking at their sodium concentrations, people who had high levels of sodium or higher levels of sodium, but still in the normal range, right? So the normal range, just so you know, is anywhere between 135 to 145 or 146. And the normal range is 140. Once we started to see sodium levels going above 142, 143, which is considered in the normal range, those people over a of a time period of 25 years had higher levels of chronic diseases, and they also had premature death, about a 20% increased risk of premature death. And really, the only thing that you need to do to get the sodium down is just to drink more water. So, uh, and, and so this was an associative study. So, of course, we all know that association doesn't mean causation. But the reason why I think it's remarkable is because the, the reason why they did this study in the first place was because of the observation that in, in mice, when you chronically deprive mice of water, 
Um, obviously not so much that they would die immediately, but just had less water available to them. They also had increased risks of chronic disease and premature death. So I, I do think there's a little bit more to it than just an association. And I, I think that uh, drinking plenty of water, the, the kidneys are going to take care of any of the excess, just making sure that you're tanked up is, is a good thing to do. That's internal use of water. Uh, there's also external use of water. And we could probably talk for a good hour about the use of water, uh, hot water, uh, in terms of hydrotherapy and cold water. You know, sort of this uh, idea that the increasing the temperature of the human body using water or, or decreasing it uh, has a tremendous impact is not new. That We've been actually doing this for over 100 years. If you go back and look at how... Uh, hospitals and sanitariums, especially in the Northeast of the United States, 100 years ago during the, the pandemic, were using water externally on patients. You will see that they did so with great success. Of course, this was before um, penicillin was invented. This is back in the, in the early 1900s. But the, the science is actually now coming out showing that uh, use of external uh, water, either cold or hot, in, in depending on, on how you want to do it, there are definite immune related responses to these sorts of things. So I think that's an area that would be well looked at if we could do it, because again, it represents a way of, of treating patients that doesn't require a supply chain, doesn't require uh, you know, a prescription, for instance, but can be scalable and used in, in uh, thousands of people if, if necessary. Now, they called it hydrotherapy. Is that right? And they had, what, boxes that people sat in? Yeah, there was actually um, a number of ways of doing it. You could uh, use a, a hot box. You could also use, um, uh, you know, basically just hot towels. This was actually the reason why Dr. Joreg, the uh, Austrian psychiatrist, got the Nobel Prize in Medicine in 1927. Basically, he noted that heating patients up in a, in a gentle way, could actually get rid of disease. He, he saw in his insane asylum uh, people who had neurosyphilis, and this was before penicillin, and he purposefully injected them with malaria, and they got high fevers. The high fevers actually cured the neurosyphilis, and then, of course, at the time, they had the treatment for malaria, which was quinine. He treated them, and they were completely cured, and, and for this he got the Nobel Prize, as I mentioned. So this is something that is well-documented, well-known. Um, we didn't do it as much after the 1928 era because we discovered penicillin. It was much easier to give medications at that point than it was to do the labor-intensive um, mode of, of hydrotherapy. But uh, it, it definitely has a scientific basis. I'm thinking that uh, hydrotherapy might actually go back even a lot further, although the science doesn't go back any further, than 100 years ago. I'm thinking of all those... Um, hot springs that people would go to for healing, like in Bath, England, in Lourdes, France, and yeah, all over the Roman Empire, people prized those hot springs, didn't they? Absolutely. Um, in fact, if and I've been amazed by this, but I've talked to people in different cultures, in Iran, in, in the Middle East, in Asia, in China, in South America, and they all have these traditions in their health traditions of when someone is sick is to heat them up. If it's in Iran, they would put them in the hot sand. Uh, if it was in Asia, they would, they would use hot water, whatever was available to them. And there seems to be this, this knowledge, this institutional knowledge um, that goes back even before modern science that this is what they used to do. 
Well, I think if you were to go to Finland, you would find a tradition that goes back hundreds of years called the the sauna or the sauna, depending on how you want to pronounce it. And uh, people would often go from the sauna into the um, into the snow. So they were going from very hot to very cold to back to very hot. What's the medical support for sauna bathings, sauna bathings, getting into the sauna bath? <laughs> yeah, there there is a tremendous amount of information. In fact, uh, we at MedCram uh, actually hosted uh, Rhonda Patrick, who has, has been a big proponent of saunas. We actually have a video on all of the benefits of that. But Cardio, it's it's basically a cardiovascular equivalent. So if you can't exercise, going into the the sauna, as I would say, um, for twenty minutes and then cooling off uh, afterwards for a short period and then going back in, it's there's a tremendous cardiovascular benefit. There's a, a tremendous uh, uh, brain um, benefit, so neurological improvement, well being. There's been a number of studies that have studied Finland, as you mentioned, because everybody in Finland basically saunas. In fact, the control group in Finland is those that just do it once a week. <laughs> um, in fact, there's so many saunas in Finland that if everybody in Finland decided to go into a sauna at the same time, there would be plenty of room for the entire population. It's, it's so well used. And again, uh, what we see there, as you mentioned, is they go into the sauna for about 20 minutes, they come outside, and then they part of the tradition is they'll take um, branches of trees and just kind of hit themselves in a way at when they're doing the cold. And this is exactly what they were doing in New England a hundred years ago is they would do something called cold mitten friction. And, and the purpose of this cold is to cause constriction of the blood vessels and demargination of the white blood cells so that they come into circulation. And this friction is basically knocking off or causing the white blood cells to come off of their bearing off of the uh, the edge of the of the blood vessel so they can come out into circulation and do what they do. We now know that heating somebody up to a temperature of about 39 degrees Celsius has a tenfold increase in interferon release from leukocytes, the white blood cells. And it's this interferon, this specific substance of interferon, which the SARS-CoV-2 virus suppresses early on in the infection and allows the infection to continue to going on and on and on. So um, there is a definite, you can connect the dots very easily at looking at the early use of hydrotherapy in a SARS-CoV-2 infection. Well, speaking of COVID, I, I promised that we would talk a little bit about supplements. And I'm especially interested in what you have discovered in terms of low cost, low risk dietary supplements, and in particular, maybe vitamins and minerals that might be helpful against not just COVID, but maybe viral infections in general. And why don't we start with zinc? Yeah, zinc has, is a uh, tremendous uh, ion. Um, we found out pretty early if we talk about COVID, that there was a study that was done that looked at the enzyme that is coded for by the SARS-CoV-2 virus called RNA-dependent RNA polymerase. Basically, this is an enzyme that tells the cell to start making more viral genomes from the uh, from the virus. And this can be inhibited by zinc. And uh, so zinc needs to be able to get inside the cell to be able to do what it does. And so there's a number of what they call zinc ionophores 
that can help do this, that can help get the zinc inside the cell. So you need to have enough zinc, of course, in your body, but then you also need to get the zinc inside the cell to do what it needs to do. Sorry, what is an ionophore? Yeah, so a zinc ionophore allows the zinc to go inside the cell. That's basically what it is because normally charged particles are not allowed to go inside of cells unless they have a specific protein transfer that will move the zinc inside. And so what these substances can do is they can stimulate these proteins to move the zinc inside the cell. So for instance, quercetin is a zinc ionophore. And would you spell that, please? Uh, quercetin is Q... Yeah, Q-U-E-R-C-E-T-I-N, quercetin. So quercetin will help get the zinc into the cells. What else? Um, so there are other substances that can do that. Um, uh, zinc itself, obviously, uh, is, is what you need to get the, the zinc inside the cell. Um, there are other substances that can do it. Um, hydroxychloroquine is also known as a zinc ionophore, and the chloroquine brand or chloroquine uh, type of substances can also bring zinc in. Um, this was the reason why uh, it was lo being looked at as one of these uh, medications that may help in COVID that was off-label, but it could be used to help in that. And there have been a, a number of studies. Uh, some studies have shown that there is improvement. Some studies have shown uh, that there hasn't been improvement, but that's one of the potential uses for, for quercetin and for hydroxychloroquine. Now, Dr. Schrott, we only have about three minutes left, and we have a bunch of supplements to talk about. So I'm going to ask you to go into the lightning round for things like vitamin C, melatonin, vitamin D, what is NAC, and maybe even K2. Okay, let's hit, hit NAC first. So NAC, which is N-acetylcysteine, is a powerful antioxidant. There was a study that was done in 1997 where people took NAC 600 milligrams twice a day for six months. It did not reduce the incidence of the flu, but it significantly reduced the severity of the flu. So during a flu season uh, or even COVID-19, I would take 600 milligrams twice daily for six months. We don't have good long-term data on it, so I wouldn't take it throughout the year. I would take a break from it. Uh, so that's NAC. Vitamin D, I do take vitamin D because I don't get outside as much as I should, and I think that supplementing is good. The one word of caution I would say is make sure you get your levels checked because there is the potential, although remote, of having vitamin D toxicity. So make sure you're getting le your levels checked, and I would recommend uh, getting it at least up to about 50 nanograms per milliliter. That's a, a good level to get. Um, that would be your blood level. That would be your blood level. That is correct. And, and how much would you take? I am taking currently about four to 5,000 international units daily. Uh, but that's for me. That's because of my age. That's because of my skin color. I'm a little bit olive, uh, I guess. I live in Southern California, so maybe I don't need as much. But everybody is a little bit different uh, laboratory, and so you should probably get your levels checked after you, you're taking supplements to make sure it's not too high. Vitamin C? Vitamin C is a great uh, water-soluble vitamin. It's hard to overdose on that. Um, there's a lot of studies that have shown that it can be beneficial, although you have to take it in pretty high doses. I would be careful if someone has a tendency to get kidney stones because uh, it has to be excreted in high amounts. And if you're one that makes kidney stones, maybe it's, maybe it's something that you should uh, not take too high of a dose of. Dr. Schwelt, we talked earlier about hydrotherapy. And we also noted that Joe and I started watching your MedCram videos during the pandemic. One of the things that really caught our attention 
was your suggestion that after a nice hot shower, you turn the water onto cold. What does that do for you? Well, yeah, lots of things. Um, so turning that water onto cold, as we mentioned before, causes vasoconstriction and kind of keeps the heat inside the body. But there's a number of things that that can do from a mental standpoint in terms of giving you practice in terms of being able to hear your body is saying, I want to get out, I want to get out. But your mind is actually strengthening in terms of your ability to, to control a situation where you have a lot of epinephrine. So that's the first thing it does. In terms of your metabolics, uh, what that does is that cold water causes the secretion of epinephrine, and it actually has been shown to turn white fat, which is the storage of fat in your body, into brown fat. Brown fat is more metabolically active. It increases your uh, basic metabolic rate, and it also increases the mitochondria in those cells and allows it to break down, which means translates into increasing your basal metabolic rate. And then the last thing it does is that cold water, especially if it's done after exercise, uh, tends to improve the recovery of those muscles after exercise, leading to less inflammation. So it just depends on when you're doing it in terms of that benefit. But um, uh, what, uh, what I have learned in, uh, in listening to other people who are experts in this, and particularly um, Andrew Huberman's podcast where he, where he talks about uh, cold plunge is what you want to aim for is about 11 minutes per week uh, is what the, the data is showing. And um, so what I've been starting to do actually based on this is, is I've uh, gotten a timer in my shower and uh, I'm turning the water to cold as much as I could tolerate it without having to you know, feel like I would be unsafe. Cold for about two minutes at the end and doing that on a daily basis. And you can see that that would very easily get you above the 11 minute mark. Yeah, that, that does add up. Um, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm kind of in awe of your ability to do that. That, that sounds a little daunting for me. Um, I did want to finalize any other supplements that you might be taking or any other thoughts that you might have about dietary supplements, starting with fish oil. Yeah, so fish oil has the omegas in them. And uh, of course, the omegas have been shown to improve cardiovascular health, also mental health as well. The one thing that I am now starting to look at a little bit more carefully, I just noticed that there was an article that showed that um, freshwater fish, and, and it depends on where you get your omega-3s, of course, but freshwater fish have uh, many, many times the amount of forever chemicals. And if you don't know what a forever chemical is, it's these things that they put in plastics uh, that keep them uh, stable, that they use to, to make them uh, much more concentrated in fish and in fish oils than, um, than in, found in, uh, you know, in, in the general environment. And of course, mercury is an issue. So uh, you, what we need to do is to be able to make sure that the source that we're getting the fish oils from is, is relatively low in mercury. Otherwise, there are other, uh, other ways of getting those omega uh, acids. For instance, there's vegan uh, ways of getting it, vegetarian, et cetera. So I think that's important. And any other dietary supplements that you take? I do take... Um, you know, a, a multivitamin just to make sure I take B vitamins uh, as well to make sure that I uh, I'm getting enough of those. The I I tend to be more toward plant based, and so because of that, uh, there is a a concern about vitamin B12. So I make sure that I'm getting enough vitamin B12 as well. And what about melatonin at night? 
Melatonin. Ah, yes. Okay. So we hear so, so many good things about melatonin and, uh, and its benefits. The one problem, though, is that melatonin, in addition to all of the things that we talked about, it's also a signal to the body that it's time to go to sleep. And so if you are supplementing with melatonin at any other time of the day other than at bedtime, it's going to confuse your circadian rhythm. So I, I don't recommend it outside of bedtime. Now, when you do take it at bedtime, what's interesting is there is a paradoxical response that if you take more than three to five milligrams of melatonin, it actually has the paradoxical response of making you not be able to go to sleep. And so I recommend, and a lot of sleep specialists do as well because of the studies, to really limit the amount of melatonin orally that you're taking at night to one to three milligrams. Anything more than that could actually have a paradoxical effect. Dr. Schwell, thank you so much for talking with us today. We, as we said, are in awe of your ability to explain complex medical topics. We look forward to talking with you again on The People's Pharmacy. Thank you so much. And you can join us at uh, medcram.com or our YouTube channel, uh, Medcram Videos. You've been listening to Dr. Roger Schwelt, Associate Clinical Professor at the University of California, Riverside School of Medicine and Assistant Clinical Professor at the School of Medicine and Allied Health at Loma Linda University. He's founder and principal presenter of the medical education company Medcram, which provides continuing medical education to countless health professionals. His passion is demystifying medical concepts. You don't have to be a medical professional to benefit from any of the free videos about COVID-19 or lifestyle approaches to good health. Lynn Siegel produced today's show. Al Wodarski engineered. Dave Graydon edits our interviews. B.J. Lederman composed our theme music. This show is a co-production of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC, with The People's Pharmacy. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia, the maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements that support cognitive and cardiovascular health. More information at cocovia.com. And by Gaia Herbs. Their formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial, connecting people, plants, and planet to create healing. More information at Gaia, G-A-I-A, herbs.com. Today's show is number 1,331. You can find it online at peoplespharmacy.com. That's where you can share your comments. Our interviews are available through your favorite podcast provider. You'll find the show on our website on Monday morning. This week's podcast contains a little extra information. Can you boost your immune response by taking a cold shower right Ooh, after your hot shower? I, I can't even imagine doing that, but you do I it. I do it. <laughs> Dr. Schweld also fills us in on some other supplements that he finds valuable. At peoplespharmacy.com, you can sign up for our free online newsletter to get the latest news about important health stories. By subscribing to our newsletter, you'll also have regular access to our weekly podcast, and find out ahead of time which topics we'll be covering. In Durham, North Carolina, I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Thank you so much for listening. Please join us again next week.
Thank you for listening to the People's Pharmacy Podcast. It's an honor and a pleasure to bring you our award-winning program week in and week out. But producing and distributing this show as a free podcast takes time and costs money. If you like what we do and you'd like to help us continue to produce high-quality, independent healthcare journalism, please consider chipping in. All you have to do is go to peoplespharmacy.com slash donate. Whether it's just one time or a monthly donation, you can be part of the team that makes this show possible. Thank you for your continued loyalty and support. We couldn't make our show without you.